Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast, and I am with the one and only Alex Youngblood. How are you, Alex? I'm good. I'm good. You are the one and only Joe McCall. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. I know. Shucks. But uh, we, got, <laughs> we, got a, we got a great interview today with a gentleman named Greg Christensen. And um, I don't know if you're hearing those beeps, but that's my computer, if you are. Uh, I'll try to shut that off here in a second. That's um, very unprofessional, Joe. Yeah, very, geez. very unprofessional. I'm not in my office today. I'm actually in a, my home office. I'm in my, in my other office today. And I don't have my podcast recording mic, so hopefully you can hear me okay. But uh, guys, go to realestateinvestingmastery.com to check out our site. Check out the show notes. We have our Fast Cash Survival Kit. And you know what's the survival kit? Alex, maybe we need to put something in there about asset protection. Absolutely. Which is what we're going to be talking about today. That that would definitely be a uh, survival item, but uh, it's not. This is more of a long term thing, especially when you start making some money and uh, having to write some checks to the IRS. I'll I'll tell you, it's a very uh, it's a very sad day for me on like October <laughs> the fifteenth. You know, after the extension happens, it's just oh, <laughs> it is such a sad day. <laughs> it's it's pretty. Uh... I I write checks to the IRS, which people would wish they made in a year. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, my goal is to pay a million dollars in taxes every year. Oof. Well, oh, well, what kind of money are you making if you pay a million dollars in taxes every year? You're, you're making a lot of money, but I, I think there's a better way. <laughs> there has to be a better way out there. And hopefully our... Our uh, guest today can, uh, you know, you know, because it's not what you make; it's what you keep, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure Greg will have a lot to say. It about really that. is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But listen, Alex, I want to jump right into this interview. Normally, yeah, let's we go. banter back and forth quite a bit, and we talk about deals, and we talk about what else—the weather and sports and yeah. uh, kickboxing. So uh. let's not do that. Today. Are you still? <laughs> Are you still kickboxing, by the way? Yeah, I've uh, I've I've taken a not as hardcore as I was, and here you are talking about kickboxing, but not as hardcore as I was because I'm trying to finish up my house, and that's taking up a lot of my time. So uh, once that's done, I will have so much time I will not know what to do with it, and I will resume kickboxing more regularly. Thanks for asking. All right, all right, good, good, good. <clears throat> Let's jump in, <laughs> guys. We have a guest, Greg Christensen from Guardian uh, Guardian Law, and Greg's going to introduce his company and talk about it some more here, but I thought it would be good coming up on tax season right now. I'm not sure when everybody will be listening to this yet, but I mean, this is uh, an important time to start thinking about these things. How are you doing, Greg? Good. How are you guys doing? Excellent. You can tell from our podcast, we're really professional. <laughs> and we, we take this stuff really, really seriously. <laughs> so. Um, so t why don't you introduce yourself to our guests? You were just so everybody knows you were introduced to me 
from somebody in our mastermind. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we get to talk to somebody about this stuff because we don't, we don't think much about it. And the, part, that's part of the problem. We don't really think about asset protection until maybe it's too late, right? So yeah, I mean, would you... I was just going to say, Greg, would you just introduce yourself and, and the company that you've started and, and kind of what what's this all about? Sure, sure. So again, my name is Greg Christiansen. Um, I own and operate a law firm by the name of Guardian Law. We have uh, a staff of about 20 individuals for a mid-sized law firm. We, My partner and I started business about 12 years ago. Um, we cut our teeth on various... Uh, marketing and real estate transactions and started really focusing on corporate uh, structures and estate planning and asset protection. So for the last 12 years or so, we've kind of put together a portfolio of clients we've represented across the United States that vary in sizes from multi-million dollar corporations to small mom and pop individuals to people who are just trying to invest in real estate. So we as a firm set up about 2,000 entities per year and, and do about 300 estate plans per year. So it's a big portion of our underlying practice. So anyway, it's, it's good to talk about this uh, asset protection, what people can do, especially real estate investors, how they can try to protect their portfolios by engaging just a couple of simple um, procedural um, applications. So I'm more than happy to to go through that with you guys today and explain to your listeners about what things they can implement. And if there's some services that are available either through their local attorneys or through our firm, we'd be more than happy to, to assist them with that. <clears throat> Greg, why don't you talk about why you got started in this part of the business? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So I, I went to uh, Gonzaga university, um, graduated there from the school of law there and, uh, was so I'm a little sad because my Zags lost this last Sunday. So oh, sorry just, about that. I know I, I I bring it up because you guys wanted to talk sports beforehand, and <laughs> I was thinking about how sad I am that we couldn't beat Duke because Duke is Duke. And wow, anyway, not not to offend any of the Duke fans out there. I'm not a hater. I just upset that my team lost. Yeah, I can understand. But uh, after graduating, I went to work for the Nevada Supreme Court for as one of the clerks for one of the judges there, and. Nevada at the time, you know, we're talking about 12 years ago, was a real hot spot for you know, companies to st start up their businesses. Uh, Nevada had has very favorable corporate uh, governance laws, shareholder protection laws, and LLC charging orders. And so the kind of the new trend about 12 years ago across the nation was to set up a Nevada LLC for asset protection purposes. So when I was clerking for the Supreme Court, I really got indoctrinated into that uh, civil protection from personal liability and some of the assets that were afforded, some of the benefits afforded by operating under a, a Nevada corporation. And that sparked my mind into, well, what, what are other states are out there? And so I started looking at what, what favorable states exist in trying to do business and what type of asset protection is out there. And so that's kind of where we started. Um, my emphasis in law school was corporations and corporate law. And before going to law school, I worked for Fidelity Investments and um, have kind of a securities background with it as well. So I'm always, I've always been kind of interested in 
you know, how we can protect the portfolio that you have as a licensed broker. I, I did that before law school and then during law school I was always thinking about, okay, how can I help clients keep what they have? And so that's how we got started was just getting an interest in that and then we jumped into it and we started meeting clients that had uh, parallel interests and needed help on how to protect their their corporate structures and their personal assets and we started from there and we built a practice that we're still, you know, 12 years in going strong and we've we haven't had many famine years, we've had a lot of feast years just because that's there's a need out there and as individuals learn about that need we're there to supply um, the resources for those needs. So do you do you have like an emphasis or do you focus on helping real estate investors? I guess my bigger question is why real estate? Um, why is yeah. real estate important for somebody concerned about protecting their assets? We probably put together 2,000 entities a year just on, for real estate investors. Okay. And you, you really have to look at asset protection in two different categories. One is business activity, which I we have a mold and a model that we have uh, instruments to help protect for that. And then the other kind of block is is personal assets and how we, we try to protect our personal assets. And there's there's strategies to do that. Um, for the real estate investor, there's just automatic risks they're going to come up against when they're out there uh, engaging in business in the market. And so some of those activities, and, and you probably talk about this on your other shows, they can range from flipping homes, uh, buy and sell homes, uh, entering into assignment of contracts with individuals where you're engaging in a contract that you eventually assign to somebody else, um, going in and just like the traditional buy and hold and become a, a tenant and landlord situation. Every one of those situations involves some sort of risk that could potentially cause um, an individual to be personally liable for their actions. And so the general premise of the business side, I mentioned there's kind of two buckets. The business side of that, the general premise is, is that I would never advise a client to engage in business where they're going to engage, purchase any type of real estate or engage in any type of contract where they didn't um, have, they didn't do so under a business entity. So the, the idea is that um, if I go out and I'm going to say I'm going to do a traditional buy and hold property, I'm going to lease it out to some tenant, that if I do that individually, I buy that property individually, then it, that say that tenant goes down, checks out the laundry room. This is an actual case that I've, I've actually dealt with in the last 10 years. Start the laundry, um, put it in the dryer, something goes wrong, there's a short, burns down the apartment, uh, the children inside, become smoke inhalated they have to be taken out of the home and then everything is destroyed tenant gets upset sues the uh sues the landlord which in this case could potentially be me individually and not only wants all their assets to be replaced but also maybe damages for their children who were were harmed in this this terrible accident so as an individual under that fact pattern if I own that property myself and say I have insurance, say I have renter's insurance or something, but it's not enough to cover the liability that arises from that damage, 
I'm personally liable for that, those actions. So in order to avoid that personal liability, which then this, this one renter can then go against any other properties that I may own and then go and collect for my entire portfolio, in order to limit that exposure, I would operate under an entity. We generally operate under a, what we call a dual entity structure where we have a parent limited liability company or C-Corp, depending on what tax benefits you want to take advantage of, and then a operating LLC that which will own that home. So in this case, if the home was owned by the LLC, if the renter were to sue the company that owns the home, they'd be locked into the assets of that one LLC, not all of the potential assets of the of the landlord. But Greg, I'm sorry, Alex, go ahead. They can't sue um, the landlord as well as the LLC and say, well, you're a member of the LLC. So, Yeah, good question. Right. So generally speaking, one of the benefits of having an LLC is the protection. I call it a shield of liability that you get from operating under that business structure. What it basically means is unless the individual tenant or the person bringing the suit can pierce through that corporate entity and get to the assets. That's the term piercing the corporate veil, right? (laughs) He's piercing the corporate veil. That's correct. Unless they can prove that through one of a couple of various theories, then the underlying member is not liable for that activity. It's also the very term, right? Limited liability corporation. (laughs) That's why. Correct. Correct. Exactly. And, Not to get too technical for your listeners, but every state has what's called a charging order. And that's basically what governs what creditors or um, potential litigants can can actually pierce and get to the assets of an LLC. So a charging order in most states will limit individuals who are suing an LLC from either getting to the principal assets of the LLC or the income from the LLC. just depends on what state you're in. So we've done a lot of research. I mentioned first the call about what states are the best to do business in. And it really comes down to a couple of main states, and that would be Alaska, Delaware, and Nevada. Um, Delaware and Nevada uh, are a little more expensive. And so generally speaking, we help people do it in Alaska. Alaska has a very um, protective charging order that doesn't allow individuals to get to the assets or to the interest from or income. So I could operate in Virginia, but still be an Alaskan LLC and receive the benefits of an Alaskan LLC statewide, even though I'm operating in Virginia? You could. The way we structure that is that if your property was located, a lot of investors don't have the property located in the state where they live. So you first have to check whether or not the state laws of that state required the LLC to be formed in the state where the property is located. There's 23 different states that it's law. You have to have it set up in that state. But with the structure we suggest, it doesn't matter because we would always say to have an LLC in the state where the property is at regardless. So the way that this would work is we would have a parent corporation, which would be an LLC out of Alaska, which would wholly own an LLC in the state where the property was located. And that, that gives you another additional layer of protection. So to go back to your question about the piercing is properties owned by an LLC. The member of that LLC is another LLC that's for, formed in Alaska. So the tenant has to sue the LLC in 
Virginia or Texas or wherever it's located, get a judgment pierced through that entity, and then go to Alaska and try to pierce through that entity as well. And it's it it's near impossible under the current laws in Alaska to pierce Do through. Do they Alaska need entity. to get somebody? In Alaska, like they have to retain somebody in Alaska no. to do this. No, they don't. They don't. Our firm is licensed there, and we we act as registered agent for oh, them no, no, if I'm they want to use it. I'm talking about the seller. I mean, the uh, potential uh, loss. The the one who's bringing the suit. Do they have to go to yeah, Alaska if they're going to try to pierce through that? That they would have to try to do that in Alaska as well, unless they could argue that there's some sort of. Uh, Citus argument that it's in their local state, but even so, the, if they're in Virginia, for for example, and they sue an Alaska corporation, they've got to prove to that Virginia court that there's jurisdiction there to sue that court. So that's another reason it makes it difficult. People look at that and they're like, "I I don't want to sue this. I don't want to get involved in this mess. I don't want to try to pierce this. I'll just take whatever assets are available under this one LLC if I'm successful, and I'll leave it to that." And what that really helps is most clients that we do business for, they don't have one property. They have several properties, and they're also engaged in several different strategies. They, they're not just buying holders. They're flippers. They're assignment a contract. You know, they may bird dog for people. They have a whole bunch of different um, avenues that they execute and strategies they use for real estate investing. So say they have four properties. Well, we have one parent company, and then each one of those properties is a, in a wholly owned LLC subsidiary of that parent company. And so if there's any liability arises from the four hold properties they have, it's, it's isolated to that individual LLC. And then if they're on the other side, they're doing assignment of contracts, they have another company that's just doing the assignment of contracts. Now that's a more complicated, more complex um, setup than most people probably need or use. But for the avid real estate investor that's spending hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars a year in real estate investing, we set up this type of structure for a lot of people and they use it very successfully. Hey, Greg, I was going to ask you, like, you're not, well, you're not talking about being protected from lawsuits. You're talking about protecting your assets in case you are found negligent in the lawsuit, right? Correct. The question is, is, are you personally liable for that, or can you, you defend your personal assets from, from liability? Every lawsuit that I've seen, and I've, I've been involved with lawsuits for, with tenants, um, they right. name the LLC, they name you, they name your spouse and your kids and your grandkids and your future kids, and they name your project managers, property managers, everybody that could have even remotely been involved with you and that deal is going to get named in that lawsuit. And so if you do get, if you, if you are found negligent, what prevents the judge to say, you know what, you have a judgment, Joe McCall, that you have to take care of. And, and, and it gets attached to my name because I was named in that lawsuit. Cause it doesn't, does it really matter? Let me just play devil's advocate. Does it really matter that you, you do anything in an LLC if you're going to be named in a lawsuit personally. Yeah. Um, let me address that. It's true that there are quite a few lawsuits by tenants um, that do name the individual owners for that. My uh -huh. firm's been quite successful in getting those dismissed. Um, 
because it's clear and evident. The, the key with that is going to be making sure that you don't you, you play you don't play multiple roles in a transaction. That if you're engaged in a landlord tenant deal, they write their checks to the LLC, they they pay the LLC, the communications and correspondence is always in the LLC's names. If sure. it's done correctly like that and they bring suit against the individuals, it's ripe for a dismissal, meaning the judge should dismiss that case 99% of the time because there's there's no proof. Now, if you go and, and you intentionally harm somebody on the on your property, then that's a tort that's a little bit different. It's intentional. Then you're always going to be liable. There's there's no protection for that type of activity. But if it's somebody falls down the stairs because there's a loose step on your property and breaks their hip, then there's definite protection for that from from tenants that um, would fall under the scope of the LLC as long as it's one formed correctly and two that you adhere to the tenants of um, doing business completely under that entity. So yeah, it's possible to be sued as an individual, but if it's done correctly, it will protect you from personal liability. But every attorney who is bringing this lawsuit is going to try to go after you personally, right? And so then it becomes, then is it up to the judge to determine whether to allow that or not? Let's say the the judge finds that the tenant yeah. wins. And yeah, you know what? You should have put salt on the driveway. You were responsible for that and you didn't do it. So you're you're going to be held responsible. But if the LLC doesn't have any assets and they award a $500,000 judgment, can I just say, oops, I'm sorry, the LLC doesn't have any assets? That- that's right. And then That's the judge, right. but is it realistic to expect the judge to say, you know what, um, you're going to have to find a way, Joe McCall, to satisfy this judgment because you owned that LLC? Nope. That's the whole idea of having um, having that shield of li- personal liability. That's the idea of having a corporation is that you're not personally liable for those wrongful acts unless it's proven that you intentionally did it, which in most cases isn't isn't a fact pattern that we look at. In most cases, it's something that occurred that wasn't foreseeable, and then there was a lawsuit that came. But even if it was foreseeable and there is some sort of negligence, it, it's trapped to that individual LLC. So if there's only $100,000 worth of assets in that LLC and they have a claim for 500000 and they get a judgment, that's all they've got against that individual LLC. They don't generally get that from you individually unless they can prove fraud or they can prove intentional um, intentional harm, which is very difficult. Both of those are very difficult to prove. So if they could prove so, fraud, fraud would quote unquote pierce the veil, the corporate veil, right? Yeah, it's it's one of those where it's fraud is proven when I'm not going to get to the, the legal too much with it. I'm sure there are some attorneys that are on there that it really comes to the mental state that you have, which is did you intentionally mean to deceive them by doing some act? Okay. <laughs> That's the okay. general, I mean, very layman's term of fraud. And most states have a very high scrutiny standard for you to bring. You have to plead with particularity on how to bring a fraud case. Most courts don't like fraud cases because they're left to a lot of interpretation and they have to prove this mental state that they intended to do that. And it's very okay. difficult to do. So most of the time you can avoid, you don't see a lot of fraud cases involved with real estate clients. Mostly it's some, a slip and fall or, you know, unforeseeable thing, black mold or, 
you know, something that comes up that you didn't know about. And then if they didn't remedy it, then maybe they could potentially be liable beyond the LLC. But in most of the cases, it protects them. A lot of the squabbles you'll look at with this, and we're only looking at one strategy here with buy and hold, is really, you know, I've got hurt on the property and I, I want some compensation and the insurance policy is not sufficient enough to cover that. Um, or, you know, something happened where the property wasn't kept maintained to a proper order. So you basically evicted me because I couldn't live in that. It was an uninhabitable. And those are, I would say, a majority of the lawsuits we see are that. And we're quite successful. And, and a good attorney in, in the way things are set up is easily can easily defend a case like that and limit it to the, the LLC. But I don't want to just say that it's limited to that type of risk exposure. I mean, there is also like an assignment of contract. We all see contracts that go south. If you enter into a contract to sell a property and, and one of the parties defaults in some way and it makes it look like you're, you're part of the problem, they sue you. But it's very rare that in a contract case that they ever pierce they ever are able to pierce that corporate veil and get to the individual unless they, again, they prove fraud, which is difficult to do. But liability is only on the business side is only one reason that you would do an estate plan. I think, or excuse me, have a, a business entity to do structure to do business in. I think it's a great way to do it. Um, my law professor in law school always called it building paper foxholes. <laughs> just, to be able to put walls between you and personal liability. That's one reason why we do a dual entity so that you have the one LLC that owns the property and then it's owned by another LLC. So even if they try to quote unquote, bring the members in the members, another LLC, it's not you individually, but the other side that you want to look at. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to ask, let's say the LLC or the, the, the plaintiff, the tenant is awarded damages. Okay. And that judgment then gets attached to that LLC. Yep. Um, I mean, obviously, the judge wants the law says you have to take care of that judgment and pay it. Sure. Um, so that judgment is going to sit out there. Does that, even though the LLC, I don't know how, the question I guess I'm trying to ask is like, does, just be, because I owned that LLC, is that judgment going to follow the investor all around when wherever they're trying to do business in the future because there's a lawsuit attached to the LLC that they used to own? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I understand. So let me, there's, it's really a twofold question uh, or answer to your question. And that's yes, one, it potentially could follow the LLC around. But most likely what you would do in that case, if you had a judgment like that, is that either you would liquidate the assets from the LLC and try to satisfy the judgment to that or try to exhaust insurance proceeds or some, some um, other resource to pay that judgment. But if it wasn't sufficient, then you just let it sit. Um, because it's really, other than that, those lawsuits are unsecured debts that can be ex- either extinguished or Bankruptcy, I'm not suggesting you'd file bankruptcy in that case, but it's just they wouldn't have any ability to try to enforce that other than go against the assets in that LLC. And so once those assets are exhausted, then it sits there in judgment. In a lot of jurisdictions, depending where you reside, you have to 
collect on a judgment within seven years. Otherwise, it's just dismissed. So the idea is that you would have a judgment against a former company that you used to own um, that's been liquidated and there's there's no assets in it. I mean, look at Donald Trump. If, that, if the case was it was going to hurt his real estate empire, then he would have been bankrupt and out of business years ago. But yeah. it doesn't – I mean – that's the whole idea behind these corporate structures is to allow people to cut their losses and go on to the next transaction. Okay. So. But it doesn't protect stupidity, right? Like, no, yeah. Yeah. If you're stupid, it just, and you're intentional, then you're, you're going to be liable for, for something. So you probably, so. the, the well, judge would probably attach the judgment to you and your LLC in that kind of a case, right? If it was shown that you and, you knew about, say you knew that there was black mold in an apartment you owned or condo and you didn't correct that and it came out, then you could per personally be liable for that. Okay. Uh, that's, that's the it, intention. Well, yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. So like, uh, you know, I do, I've got a lot of new construction properties we're doing, right? So mm -hmm. I was trying to see what type of, what would be the best type of protection, um, it's almost like, okay, so if you're going to do a property, one property, is it best to set up an LLC for that particular property? So in case somebody had a complaint down the road or something yep. and they wanted to sue, would you, they would just go after that LLC. But you'd have a bunch of LLCs at that point, you know? You could. You can also block properties. Like you can put similar properties into LLCs. So if you have... Maybe you're going into low-income neighborhoods and you're buying a whole bunch of properties, so the total investment value is under $100,000 for five or six homes. You could lump those all in there Ooh. because you know your risk exposure. That sounds like your neighborhood, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> we call yeah. that a war zone. That sounds like, it sounds like the slums of Virginia Beach. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's, I was thinking more of Detroit, but, you know, who knows? <laughs> okay. <Maybe Virginia Beach. laughs> Not right. to offend any of the listeners from Detroit, I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the liability side is only one half of the equation. The other equation is the tax. You kind of alluded to that in the initial part of the cause. Yeah. You know, there, there's definite liability protection from operating under a business structure. But the second main benefit is really the tax, the tax consequences okay. and the tax deductions and liabilities you get when you operate under an entity. So, um most individuals that are just purchasing into real estate, if they do it under a sole practitioner model, which is they haven't registered a business entity anywhere, they're just doing it under their own personal name, besides the risk exposure they have, because they're absolutely 100% certain, we've talked about probabilities, well, you could be, well, if you do buy a property and it's just under your name and somebody gets hurt, you are liable. But on top of that, you can't take certain business deductions, which individuals who have a formed structured entity that's filed with a, a state can can take advantage of. Um, and those those deductions can vary from you know management fees you may pay for a management company to to take care of the property to you know taxes that you pay. I mean everybody can take certain taxes that they pay and deduct those, but any expenses that can be legally and lawfully attributed to business, which are quite a few then they can be taken under your real estate entity that's that's set up. And so the tax ability, the ability to take tax deductions 
and carry forward losses under an entity are far greater than an individual who's just a sole practitioner. And I can give you a couple of real life examples. So generally speaking, let's just talk about loss, even though it's a dirty word and, and no investor wants to lose money, but it just happens to every business person. You engage in a transaction where you may lose money. Well, a sole practitioner who engages in a business and loses money, they're capped at a certain amount for the next year of how much they can carry forward on that, that loss to their income. So if it, if they have a $30,000 loss and they're capped at $3,000 a year, it could take 10 years to, to take full advantage of that loss. Yeah. A business owner under the correct corporate structure isn't capped at that business loss. They can, they can take those losses and carry forward them um, indefinitely in, in an, an undefined cap amount for, against future gains. So there are just certain criterias and certain benefits of, of operating under a business entity, especially tax-wise, allows you to take advantage of some, some of these uh, deductions and, and, and benefits that the IRS gives us or the, in, through the Internal Revenue Code. Losses is one. Um, general business deduction expenses, I, I can attribute my laptop or my cell phone or my utilities or an office all of those become potential tax deductions, which, generally speaking, aren't fully available through an individual that's just operating as a sole proprietor. Right. Uh, those are all things that just automatically give you benefits. Now, one one benefit, and sometimes we'll set up a C corporation as the parent corporation, and the reason we do that is because C corporations allow the corporation to set forth certain criteria. They can have in their bylaws, which are the the documents that basically govern the corporation, that all employees will get fringe benefits of some sort. Maybe it's health care benefits. What that means is say that that individual who's real est- in, investing in real estate needs health care uh, insurance. So they go out and they find some provider of health insurance and they sign it up under the C corporation. And in their bylaws it says, oh, we're going to cover 100% of the premiums for all employees of the C corporation which generally speaking could be a man and his wife or maybe his children. And so they go out and they generate money through their real estate investing. They flow it up through the C corporation to cover the, the premiums for those, which become tax deductible and expenses through the business where otherwise you and I as sole practitioners, if we go out and we get an insurance policy, we have to try to pay that out of pocket. Then we don't get to deduct that until we, we made a, a certain amount of our adjusted gross income exceeded. And so there are just certain benefits of having a corporate structure that's properly and you know specifically tailored to the individual that allow them to take advantages of tax benefits that are just not available to regular individuals. Now, does it matter, Greg, what state you create the LLC in for tax protection? No, because most tax laws are federal. Now, I say that with the caveat that everything I'm mentioning is federal law. Every state does have their own. There are certain states that do not have income tax. Um, Washington, Nevada. I mean, there are certain states, definitely they're out there, that don't have income tax. But um, the other states that do, Utah, Wyoming, I mean, there, there are several states that do have income tax. So it just depends on where, where you're living or where the property is. That You may have to also think about state income tax. But for the most part, the main benefits come from that federal income 
requirement with the IRS. I mean, it's most likely you're you're more afraid of dealing with the IRS than dealing with some state tax commission. Yeah. So, yeah, most of the benefits are going to be federal. There, there'll be some state benefit as well, but you don't normally take expenses deductions for on the state. It's more they more just how much income have you made and you know what what are you paying on the federal government? Most of the time, it's tied to what you're paying the federal government anyway. On how they deduct or they determine how much what your state liability is. So I mean, there's just it's just smart business to do your real estate investing under a corporate structure because you can take advantage of both the liability and the, and the the business tax. And I'm not even talking about I mean, there's specific sections in the Internal Revenue Code when you first start a business. There's just automatic deductions that you can take and expenses you can write off that is like a sole practitioner they can. There's startup costs, there's operational costs, and the IRS allows you to take $5,000 per business entity for startup costs, $5,000 for operational or administrative costs. It's almost $10,000 per entity that you can expense if you've paid those expenses. And depending on, well, I'm sure there are quite a few listeners that have gone ahead and they've gone to maybe some real estate training, um, they've attended conferences, they paid for things out of pocket after they've, you know, they've engaged or set up a business, all of those become potential expenses and write-offs that a sole practitioner or an individual isn't even afforded. They can't even do that because they haven't set up a proper entity. So, I mean, the, they say the sky's the limit. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of benefits for operating as a small business when you're, in, uh, when you're engaging in real estate transactions. Yeah. Well, you talk about, because a lot of our listeners here are, like to wholesale properties. They're just in and mm-hmm. out. They flip the paper. They, they assign contracts. They, they wholesale. I'd say our, the average investor out there who is wholesaling a lot of properties probably wholesales three to five properties a month. Great. What would be a, um, a good entity structure for somebody who just does wholesaling like that? Just a simple LLC. Okay. I think they could do it. Then the wholesaling is even better. I mean, the risk exposure we talked about, about, oh, black mold or yeah. that doesn't even apply. It's a simple business transaction. It's a contract issue where you you enter into and execute that contract under your business name. If something goes south, it's it stays 100% with the business. You're not talking about personal liability at all. But if you do that as an individual, they sue you, they win, they go after your home. And so... It's just, I think, just a simple LLC in the state where you reside is sufficient to provide um, protection. We we could debate. I know there's a lot of attorneys that look at different um, structures, and we could argue that maybe an S corporation gives you certain benefits where an LLC does. But I mean, I, when I talk to a client, we'll tailor. We normally tailor their needs to what their situation is. But for the most case, generally speaking, a simple LLC will do the job for you. And so we also have a lot of people listening that own rental properties. Maybe they rehab and they they will sell to retail buyers properties like Alex was talking about. So that's when it gets a little more complex, right? What kind of entity structures you should have. Yeah, my, normally in that case, I'll off, I would set up a parent LLC that owns the LLC that owns the property. It, it sounds complicated. It's really not. It's it's one of the most simple structure. I mean, I've looked at this business for a long time, and there's if you want it complicated, you can do a family limited partnership where 
you own a C corporation that owns 1% of several small family limited partnerships. And because in a family limited partnership, only the general partner is liable. And if you make the C corporation the 1% general partner of the family limited partnership, then if somebody were to sue that FLP, um, then only the C corporation is liable, but it only owns 1%. That is a complicated, I mean, that, that takes time to structure. Um, but a dual entity will provide a majority of the benefits for that type of structure, just in a simplified form, just one entity that's apparent. And then you can own several subsidiaries. It just depends on how many properties you own and what lines of business. I mean, a lot of clients I talk to, they're not just real estate investors. They're pet shop owners, uh, they're truck drivers, they're accountants, they're attorneys, they're doctors. They have other practices. And so a lot of times I'll talk to them on the phone or they'll meet them in my office and we'll set the structure up that will cover not only their real estate transactions but their entire business portfolio. So they have one organization that's a parent and then everything else is under their that parent corporation is subsidiaries. Okay. I was just going to ask you, what are some common things that you see, mistakes that you see investors making uh, that, that are in the investing business? Yeah, I think one of the big thing is when they start commingling their business funds with their personal funds, then they just make themselves as to be just one big entity. It would be, you know, it, it's the surest way to just expose themselves into being just personally liable um, another one is not, not setting up a business structure when you know you're going to engage in business and know that there's going to be a ton of different deductions available to you. And so I have a lot of clients that they go out, they invest in a property, they lose a ton of money on something, not intentionally, and then they want to set up an entity and then they want to be able to take care of those losses. But the loss occurred maybe the year before and they haven't had the entity set up. And so I really can't help them at that point. They're just stuck. They have to. They have to take those losses over several years, and they just they get stuck. I think another big issue that I see a lot of clients is that they they'll go through and they may they want to build this huge um, empire of real estate transactions and real estate holdings, and then they don't have a properly formed estate plan. So if something ever would happen to them or their spouse or significant other then the state gets to come in and kind of dictate what happens to their estate. And that's really another side. When I say there's kind of two buckets at the beginning of the call, one bucket is business transactions. The other one's personal transactions. And the personal, your personal assets and your personal dealings should really be governed under a properly formed estate plan. And that includes a trust document that dictates what, what, how your property and how your assets should be divided if you were to die, a proper will, which governs um, just more detail on, on how certain assets should be distributed, and then two different documents, which would be a health care directive and power of attorney. And we can go into more detail on those, but I find a lot of clients will spend years accumulating wealth, and they won't spend 1500 to $2,000 or $4,000 to have a proper estate plan that's going to say how that wealth is going to be distributed if they die. And then their, their kids and their estate are left to trying to figure it out. And it has several problems. It just raises several problems. One of which is monetary. Second, yeah. which is just logistics of how you handle it. And the last is 
the emotional drama that it creates among families when they don't have a proper estate plan. And really, when you're talking asset protection, you want to complete. You want your business assets to be protected, and you want your personal assets to be protected. And without doing that, if you fail to do that, then you subject yourself to letting the state come in and determine where you want that. It's funny. I was looking at Marilyn Monroe. It was. I always get these different articles passed to me, and I was reading about Marilyn Monroe's estate. She left her estate to her uh, agent. And the, her agent married somebody else, and he died really fast. And so the royalties that come in for her estate, <laughs> they go to some lady she, didn't, she never met. She never knew. And so it's, it's just funny it, that a proper estate plan can just really avoid all of that. I was looking. Robin Williams is going through it right now. He, his uh, kids and his wife, his ex-wives are all fighting and uh, with his wife he had before he died. It's just it's all if you have it done correct you just avoid all the craziness of all that and if you don't if you don't have that done then you're you're just going to deal with a lot of heartache at least your kids or your heirs are going to deal with a lot of heartache you wow. would have thought robin williams got it right you know <laughs> yeah at least he did he did have the state plan he just wasn't clear enough in it he, the whole fight on that right now is that he has this one home and he was going he which he left to his current wife when he died but he had certain items in the home that he wanted to leave to his kids but in his estate plan the way he wrote it is he gave her the home and she's arguing that everything in the home is the home and so it's funny and then I, apparently this home is monstrous and we're talking about like um, oscar awards and you know watches and jewelry and a ton of other property there but the, the key is is to have a proper estate plan you know, Elvis died without an estate plan. That was a total mess. Now his now his estate is one of the most successful post mortem estates in the history of of the United States. Um, he's just he's I think he's like until Michael Jackson died was like one or two celebs that you know generates more money per year after they died than than when they were living. You know, so it's funny the people that don't have a proper estate plan. I wonder who gets all his residuals. That's interesting and how that. Yeah. Well, he left, I think his mom originally took it until she died. And then Lisa uh, Marie, I think is finally her and her mom finally took over the estate and they kind of, they went through Graceland, cleaned it up and um, they've kind of taken over the estate since then. But originally it wasn't, it wasn't that it was left to other people and it just ran into the ground. I've got a question for you. Let's say um, you were running a corporation and you didn't want to set up a whole bunch of other corporations. You wanted to do multiple things out of one corporation, Mm -hmm. i.e. wholesale rehab, whatever. And you didn't really pay yourself. um, Well, I shouldn't say that. I I would say you wanted to keep the money in the corporation rather than your own personal accounts. Sure. Um. Would you be able to protect yourself with uh, a UCC, meaning you would go in and make yourself personally indebted or your company personally indebted to you? So if somebody were to come in and try to sue your company, you could then pay yourself out first before bankrupting. I think the key with that would be is whether it's a legitimate arm length transaction or if you're trying to do it for the sole purpose of protecting you know hiding your assets how could it be arms length though because (laughs) i I don't know between yourself 
the only th- the, well, the only way it could be is like this. Let me give you a fact pattern I think could fit into that. Say you take $500,000 out of like an IRA. You roll it to a self-directed IRA and then you take the $500,000 and you buy a home that you're going to it's going to be an asset you're going to rent out. It's high, you know, high level home that you're going to rent out to some tenant every month. Um, it's almost like you're creating a mortgage from that self-directed IRA to that um, it's not almost like you yeah, are. It's You're like it's a, a mortgage. First, it's a first lien. That's right. What it's it is. a first lien, and you go and you file on title that you have first rights under a UCC, and that is legitimate. You can do that. So if somebody were to sue, you have first right on that asset, just like a mortgage company would have. The right. So I'm not be, talking about, oh, crap, right. he's suing me. I'm going to go make yes. a UCC real and, fast. I'm saying right. in, in advance. Yep, you're absolutely right. If you do it and it's there's a proper and formal functious in advance before any intention or notice of lawsuit, then then you're going to be fine. It's the problem is is when you're like, oh, I think I'm going to get sued on this property. Oh, remember I loaned this entity a hundred thousand dollars, and then you file a UCC two weeks before a lawsuit's filed. You're going to have you're going to run into issues for that, right? So, what would be the proper way to do that? It would be to say, okay, today it's a clear day, clear slate. Nobody's out looking to sue me. I just want to make sure that that my money is protected within my company. Would you go in and just make yourself a UCC for whatever the amount of money that you you feel that? Uh, I mean, because if if you are running in um, in an LLC partnership. All the money flows through you on sure. to the tax form. So you, I mean, you are one in the same, but if you want to protect yourself, you, I mean, I guess that would be one way to say, yeah, that's my, you know, that's my money, right? I'm just giving, letting the company use it. Yep. So the cleanest way would do that for those investors that are listening that do pull money out and they're personally paying for property then once they've done that, and if it's in an, in an entity like an LLC, then I would go ahead and I would, once they've made the investment, they've bought the property from the personal funds that were invested in the LLC, I would automatically, once that property is purchased, I would put a, I would put a lien on the property based on the UCC. And then but I'm not talking quick. property purchase. I'm just talking general. Like, let's say sure. you have $30,000. $30,000 is sitting in your bank account, and you say, oh, crap. I want to protect that money. So I'm going to say, uh, this, I mean, it is my money because I'm the one working the corporation. So I want to go ahead and put a UCC out for 30,000. So that way all that goes away. I mean, that, that shows that's my money just in case there was ever a problem, you know? Yeah. Again, it's going to really revolve around whether or not there's a legitimate reason for the UCC. If you you can't just say, my company owes me that money because it is my money. Right. No, you can't. That wouldn't be a valid that wouldn't be a valid reason to do that. And in, instead you'd have to say I've invested $30,000 in this prop this company. It they owe me this money back so I'm filing a UCC against that. But I think the other way you could handle that is not to I mean I don't know many in real estate investors that actually keep that much money in the in one checking account for the, the corporation. Normally, since an LLC is a pass-through, they'll either take yeah. that money or pay expenses, and then they'll take it out, and then they'll put it into another account that's not 
tied to the LLC. So if the LLC is sued, they're not personally liable for that. So they can't, a creditor can't go through the LLC to get to their personal money. They're just left with whatever money's in that LLC. So most clients I deal with don't leave large amounts of cash in the LLC unless they're doing something with it, like buying property. So how would you do that? How would you do that then? What, I mean, how would you have a separate account to have that set up to do that? Would you, um, I would do a distribution out of your LLC to you personally after expenses were paid at the end of like attack in a, in a tax event situation. It's not a tax. Well, I mean, it's a taxable event at the end of the year when you file your taxes, because you're going to, you're going to pay because an LLC is a pastor entity, any money that stays in there at the end of the year, depending on what basis you're going to do, you're going to get taxed most likely on that money, whether it's cash or accrual, you're, you're, you've, you've got the money. So you're so going you to just put it whatever account you yeah. want. Yeah, you could take it out. You could transfer it from the business account to your personal account as a quote unquote distribution, and then uh-huh. at that point, it's out of the LLC. So most clients don't ever keep that amount of cash. So get in, your money you know, out of the LLC. Get your money is out. What you're saying, right? And if if you put it in the individual, then there's a couple of other protections. You can have the the trust set up, like I talked about with the estate plan. You could have a trust account you could put it in, which affords some protection. Or I always encourage clients to put money into IRAs or 401ks because those are those are instruments that the government protects from any sorts of attack, including bankruptcy and government lien. And so I, and I always say put your money into those type of vehicles, even if it's a self-directed IRA, because it just affords so much more protection. Now, granted, you're you're limited each year to those types of contributions you can make to that. But then, I mean, if we wanted to get into more complex, you know, accounting and tax ramifications, that's another reason to do a C corporation because there's matching contributions and so forth that you can do that potentially could help you increase the amount of contributions you made to an IRA or, um, or a 401k or et cetera. So that's, that's how I would handle it. Aha. <laughs> Alex, you know, um, that's a good question, and I'm glad you asked them, but we've, we've got to wrap this up. We do got to go. <laughs> we've got to wrap this up. Um, there's a lot more we could talk about, Greg. How can people get a hold of you if they have questions and want some help doing this stuff? Yeah, no, I think it's pretty easy. Um, they can contact me via email. My name is Greg, G-R-E-G, at guardianlaw.com. That's G-U-A-R-D-I-A-N-L-A-W.com. Our website is guardianlaw.com. Um, they can reach out to us via email. They can give us a call um, on our general office line, um, which is 801-884-7672. Um, we'd be more than happy to talk to them if they have any questions about tax, estate planning, business set- entity setup. If they have local attorneys that they're used to working with, I'd be more than happy to get on the phone, explain some of these principles to their local attorneys. Um, Really, we're here just to kind of help out as a a resource. We believe in good karma, so if we help other people out, even if we don't generate any revenue from it, we feel like eventually maybe that'll come back and help us um, in some other way. And it it normally has. That's that's just the way we do business. So we're, we're here to be a resource and more more than happy to help out where we can. And bottom line, it's better to get t- this stuff taken care of before it becomes an issue, right? Yeah, because that's when it's too late. Right. <laughs> yep. That's when it's too late. <laughs> Hit the nail on the head. 
once once you've been sued and you, you can't go back and form an entity you're it, you're stuck with that liability right well good um greg thank you very much and Christ, hey, no. christiansen is your last name christiansen yeah, if you go to, if you're from minnesota they say it right so <laughs> <laughs> well i apologize for getting it wrong not not at all not at all i'm used to it i'm okay. used to it well i really appreciate both of your time today and uh Feel free to use me as a resource if you have any other questions. All right, Greg, thank you again. Thank you very much. Greg's email is greg at guardianlaw.com. The website is guardianlaw.com. And the phone number is 801-884-7672. All right, Greg, hey, thanks a lot. Hey, thanks again, guys. Have a nice day. Goodbye. Thanks, Greg. All right, see you. Bye-bye.